Welcome to Kibi on Liberty. Hey guys, how's it going? Good to be here. Good to be here. This Thanks. was uh, Wayne. I can't believe that we haven't done this before, um, because um, for many years you and I worked together, and you were always my my um, Gandalf the White. <laughs> I guess I'm Gandalf the White now. But, <laughs> but you like back when we were working together, you always had veto power over any campaign that we did because I wanted to make sure that, and particularly when it comes to insanely complex regulatory issues, we weren't sliding into um, accidentally a big government mindset. And, and Adam, you just joined R Street as well, but you've been working on tech stuff forever, right? 30 years. 30 years. Yeah. Before the internet. Before the internet, that's right. Uh, and Wayne, you've been working on this stuff for like 300 years. <laughs> Before, the, yeah, the funny thing is, before the wheel, the issues are still there. Nothing's changed. Yeah, <laughs> we're still fighting the same fight. You were at Kitty Hawk, right? You saw that's that, right. That's right. right. Yeah, I saw that fight. Yeah. <laughs> so th things, uh, shit's getting real with um, tech censorship, and I, I wanted to sort of parse through some of the some of the regulatory problems and and some of the political capture that's going on, but. But I want to I want to frame this. And by the way, if you're listening to this um, or watching it, you may hear that we're in the middle of a, a rainstorm. So, um, but at least we're we're drinking as well. So that's cool. So um, you guys will remember back at the dawn when 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 the internet was becoming a radically democratized thing. John Perry Barlow was talking about the beautiful potential for these new tools to radically democratize everything, knowledge and information, and to decentralize everything and move everything down to the end user. And and I, for one, and probably you guys as well, I was like, I was romantic about this. Like this is gonna fundamentally change um, power structures and all of the to top-down institutions, starting with government, that would tell us what to think and, and modulate the narrative and censor things that they didn't want us to know about. Um, I've said this a thousand times, but I, I remember when Walter Cronkite used to end his 20 minutes of curated speech with, that's the way it is. And you, you were like, okay, that's the way it is. And it's not the way it is anymore. And, and we've moved from that, that sort of romantic phase where technology was democratizing everything and frankly breaking up all of those top-down power structures both inside and outside of government. Fast forward to today where I feel like we're in the Empire Strikes Back phase in this where um, power mongers both in, in corporations but primarily in government are wanting to control this thing that became radically dem democratized and people were free to discover and speak for themselves and, and they, they don't like that. Um, and, and I'll finish my monologue with um, an observation from just the last couple weeks. Um, a Bloomberg reporter um, spontaneously asked the president of the United States if he thought that the government should investigate Elon Musk and his uh, revamping of Twitter. And then a couple days later, a Washington Post reporter um, apparently colluding with Senator Ed Markey came up with, um, managed to get, I guess, a fake verified 
account of Markey. And Markey confronted Musk with this on Twitter. And Elon said um, something like, are you a parody account? (laughs) Which was freaking awesome. So you have this um, you have this this life cycle where um, the the government and tech had colluded to censor things, and now Elon Musk has has left the script. So Wayne, Wayne, I'll start with you. Like, what? Where are you on all this stuff? We're struggling to figure out um, if big tech is still a free speech platform or not. Is it? You know, I, I, it's it's a it's a good question and it's a tough question. I, there's a lot that big tech has done. They've built these platforms that everybody uses, um, but there are questions that have to be sort of thought through carefully in terms of how you look at big tech and are they these these public squares or these are these private companies that can do what they want. And there, there's two different things I think we have to keep in mind. There's there's content moderation, which, which everybody wants. They want to go to a website, see what they you know, appreciate and, and enjoy engaging in. And then there's censorship. And finding that line between the two can get blurred sometimes. Um, and the question is, do you want the government to be the one to, to establish where that line is? And I'd be very cautious about encouraging that and instead I would look to the players who are building these platforms building competitive platforms to these platforms to maybe come together in, in a multi-stakeholder fashion and come up with some some solid rules that that people who use those platforms can appreciate and it allows them to enjoy the content moderation and worry less about the, the question of censorship so there uh, talk about the difference between a public square and a private company I mean, that's just rhetoric like like uh, Elon Musk has has referred to his vision for Twitter as as a I think he uses the word public. And and by that, he means just a just a place where everybody has a soapbox and you can freely debate issues. Well, these definitions are murky. You know, what is a public square? Is it a shopping mall? Is it, you know, whatever? You know, and we need to be careful with them because usually when you talk about public square metaphors, a lot of regulation usually follows. Common carriage regulation, neutrality, fairness doctrine, things like this. And so we want to try to avoid that, if we can, as a regulatory label. Whether it is socially a public square, I'll let people decide that for themselves. Uh, but the problem is a lot of people in government now think it's a public square that they should be in control of. Yeah. And I think a lot of the problems and a lot of the frustrations that liberty-loving people are, are confronting with today is they see friends being deplatformed or, or large tech companies doing things at the request of uh, government officials. And they say, well, this is a big tech problem. No, it's a big government problem. Right. Right. It's the government telling technology companies to do things or else. Now, what the or else is... We don't know. Right. And this has been a problem forever. I mean, we go back to when we were young and we only had three channels on television and a couple of radio stations to choose from. In those days, the Federal Communications Commission used to strong arm and jawbone old broadcasters to do what they wanted. And we even had a phrase for this. We called it regulation by raised eyebrow. And basically, the FCC knew they couldn't get around the First Amendment. And so they said, well, how else can we sort of censor speech or strong arm companies to doing our will? And what they would do, they'd call them into a committee room and say, what are you going to put on the air tonight on CBS? Mm, That's not a good idea. And next thing you know, it wouldn't be on CBS, right? So was that a big media problem? In a way it was, but it was first and foremost a big government problem. 
right? Because we licensed Spectrum and we regulated those companies as if they were town squares, public squares, whatever. We should have been deregulating the Spectrum, freeing up those technologies, and allowing a, a thousand flowers to bloom. We did that in the internet age, and going back to your metaphor, your Star Wars metaphor is perfect. I think we all got caught up in the Star Wars New Hope moment. Right. right. And right. I had John Perry Barlow come to Cato when I worked there and deliver speeches on this. And he had his Declaration of Independence for Cyberspace. And a lot of us got very caught up in this. I was big on the encryption fight. And we beat back the government. Right. And we thought, that's it. We've won. But we hadn't won. Because right. then the Empire Strikes Back moment came. And they found end runs around our freedoms. And they used the strong arming tactics they used in the past on the new tech platforms. It's a problem then. It's a problem now. But we need to understand that we don't correct that problem with more big government. Yeah, it's uh, so I've, I've been instead of calling it regulatory capture, which is when big corporations use government regulation to prevent um, new entrants, new competition. I'm calling it political capture, and maybe it's the same thing. Where that arched eyebrow from from Senator Warren. Yep, I think she's the one that sort of started the latest assault. On, on technology, and, and now Ed Markey has joined the fray. But, you know, Donald Trump did as well, sure, right? Absolutely, he did, yeah. They all wanted to browbeat them yep. into tilting the playing field in their direction. Now, I would say, and maybe it's just because the Democrats have, have been in control of government, it looks like the Democrats are winning that fight right now, particularly through efforts at the Department of Homeland Security. Um, and our street's working on this too, right? Absolutely, yeah. We actually have a, an event coming up uh, it's probably early January where we're actually looking at these the need for sort of maybe transparency or letting companies or platforms know when the government asks them for information. Do they post that information somewhere? So, so you know, it, it does shine some light onto what's going on and hopefully addresses the potential for political capture that you're talking about. Yeah, what we need these companies to do is to identify when the government's being a thug. And to come forward and say, like, look, we're getting pressure from the White House or from somebody else, some agency, yeah, yeah. the Department of Homeland Security, to, like, change our speech policies. But the problem is, is they there's always these subtle threats behind the scenes, going back to that, what you know, do this or else kind of thing, right? And we don't know what that is. But the problem is these companies and these capitalists have other holdings, other investments. The problem for Elon Musk right now is that the government's not going to come down on him as much on Twitter as they're going to come down on him with his invest, you know, his, his services with Tesla mm -hmm. and SpaceX and all of his other investments. And so he's got other pressure points where the government can put some real serious heat on him. By the way, Marky wasn't subtle. He specifically <laughs> named. Specifically said that. He said, right? I, I know where you hurt and yep. I'm going to push. Regulation there. through intimidation, right? Yeah. And, and, and the more kind of things, the levers they can pull and they can beat him up on. And of course, let's remember, Elon Musk has made a lot of money because of government subsidies and government contracts. And so those can be pulled. They can be changed. Same with tech companies that do a lot of business with government, right? But again, this is a big government problem, right? Not a big company problem. Yeah, I mean, it, it, they all they all do a lot of government work. Yeah. So it's they want it's, those contracts. There's, it's it's again, it's such such a murky thing. It is. But I wonder, like, um, this this would be purely speculative, but is Elon Musk crazy or crazy like a fox? Because he he kind of went out of his way to um, mock Markey when Markey started insulting him. And I was watching Joe Lonsdale on Squawk Box. I think it was this morning. I don't know when I saw it exactly. And he's like, this is awesome because somebody has to blow up this system and make it safe for other tech companies that are being bullied by the Department of Homeland Security 
I mean, imagine Homeland Security calling you up and yeah, saying, right. uh, uh, we, we have a problem, right. sir. Yeah. Um, so I'm hoping, like, who knows? Like, I, I don't know if, if Elon Musk is a good guy or a bad guy, but he, he seems like a good guy right now because he's challenging the power structure and... and yeah, absolutely. So I, my last book was called Evasive Entrepreneurialism, and it was all about people who basically essentially utilize technology to chart a new course and sometimes do a little bit of an end run around law and say, look, here's a new service called Uber or Lyft or Airbnb. And it's technically kind of like not right with the law or the regulatory complex, but you know, we're going to try it and see what you think. And that's a permissionless innovation play that I think has yielded enormous benefits to society, right? Right. So they push that envelope. Elon Musk is the ultimate evasive entrepreneur of our time, right? He's always pushing up against the regulatory system. And that's great. Of course, there can be downsides. And we have to figure out like how far someone like that should go, how much we would encourage him, like egg him on to go with that kind of thing. Because at the end of the day, he could be putting his companies, his investors, his employees at great risk by doing these things. So it, I, I don't know what I would do in those situations. Your, your example is exactly right. If the Homeland Security called me and said, hey, we've got problems, I might crumble like a cracker. You know, I might like, I don't know, whatever you need me to do, sir. You know, because if I've got tens of thousands of employees and I'm launching a satellite tomorrow and a new car to, on Wednesday, Right. I want to see those things happen. Right. Again, it's a big government problem. And I would say the market forces are at play here. I mean, Elon Musk is walking into a company that is a little bit, you know, the whole tech sector is experiencing a little bit of a drawback um, there, which means that they, they'll pull out of the more speculative things that they're doing and, and look to their core. So this is a perfect time for Elon to just look at what Twitter does. What, what is what is good about Twitter? What is bad about Twitter? And maybe make some changes. I'm, um, you know, one change could be sort of to decentralize some of the moderation that goes on. Set up little subgroups that, that can do their own moderating. You know, so, so the, there's a lot of potential and a lot of interesting things that could happen. And I think those are because market forces are at play and, and saying, you know, things are changing. Um, consumer demand is changing. Let's get with the program and provide a product that everybody wants and appreciates. Not a you know a censored model or an overly moderated model, but a, a model that provides a moderation that maybe different groups have different you know demands for moderation. Let it happen. You know? yeah. So I think we're in an interesting time. Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. So I had this theory about both uh, um, censorship during um, COVID and lockdowns, um, obviously people with opinions about um, vaccine mandates and even opinions about masks and, and lockdowns themselves were censored, deplatformed, uh, demonized. And, and I, I happen to be, for, forget the specific issue and where you might come down on that, I happen to be as close to a, a free speech absolutist as possible. So I wonder, um, I wonder if there aren't basic, simple rules, moderation rules that, again, could be crowdsourced to the community, but are quite simple, like you can't threaten someone's life I don't know exactly what those are, but they're they're probably the things that your mom taught you. You know, don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. There you go. That, that <laughs> kind of stuff. Somebody I've heard famous said that. I'm always flacking that book. <laughs> um, but I, 
like we're a far cry from that where where right. they're deciding um like they're they actually deplatformed epidemiologists who had right. who took the yeah. wrong position according to the government and it turns out by the way that those epidemiologists were right and the government <laughs> ones were wrong but regardless like I, I can't imagine a world where you want to prevent a robust argument, particularly about things that we don't understand. That's the whole point of free yeah. speech and decentralization. Yeah, amen, brother. I mean, look, I mean, I'm still a big believer in John Stuart Mill's vision of like uh, free speech and like pretty close to free speech absolutist. And I think, you know, we're in a we're in a uh, we're in a necessary corrective moment, not just with what Musk is doing, but a lot of societal pushback against a lot of this activity. We're now getting more transparency about how the government put its thumb on the scales about these decisions. And so to go back to your analogy, like Star Wars, you know, Empire Strikes Back, what's the Return of the Jedi moment look like, right? Where do we get some balance in the force? Because I think there's always going to be a certain level of content moderation. And Musk, you know, after saying like sort of at first kind of like comedy's legal again and anything goes, he's like, wait a minute, but you can't do parodies of me and like the, of my company. And, you know, some of those, par you know, some of those fake accounts, like the ones on Eli Lilly and others ended up costing those companies like billions of dollars because right. of people saying like, hey, insulin's free now, anything goes. So uh, Elon's going to have as much problem from the general counsels coming to sue him from Eli Lilly and Chiquita as he will from the government, I think. And so he's going to end up having a new balance. But I think it'll be a better balance in some ways because it'll pull back on the worst elements of when the government was really putting its you know, claws into Twitter, top executives and, and GCs and saying, you're going to do what we want. And they can't do that with Elon anymore. And my hope is that inspires a new generation to develop another set of tools and technologies. I mean, let's not forget, 15 years ago, if we wouldn't sit here, we'd be talking about MySpace, right? right. Yeah. And if it would have been 15 years before that, it would have been AOL or GeoCities or Lycos, you know, whatever. And so these things have changed in shocking ways in the past. I think we might be at that inflection moment again, where we might see something really important, radical happen. That's my hope. And more decentralizing tools comes online, give people more options, and information abundance once again works its magic. Yeah, I think we're in the middle of the story, and it mm -hmm. looks like a shit show right now. Yeah. It, it is a shit show right it now. Is. But yeah. but I, I want to go back, and this is uh, um, um, appeal to Gandalf the White, my good friend. <laughs> um, the Section 230 was part of some package passed in 96, is that right? Telecommunications Act of 1996. So was it, So and this was Chris Cox and, and Ron Wyden, mm -hmm. um, and this is probably still true today, but back when Ron Wyden in, it was in the house, he was one of the, the good guys on speech in particular and tech stuff. Sure. Um, we, we hosted him at, at one of our events, as I recall. Um, I don't think it's an accident that that happens in 96, and afterwards you see this massive explosion of, of new voices in politics and ideas. Absolutely. But, mm -hmm. but tell, tell people the story of, of why they did that and, and what the legislation says. Well, I mean, it, it, it's basically, it comes down to liability. Uh, are you gonna be liable for what one of your users posts online? And they, they, they carved out a little, uh, as long as it's not a federal crime and you're not you know, breaking a federal law, you, you don't have the liability um, to police every single post on your site. I mean, can you imagine how the internet would have evolved if you uh, had active sort of editing of every single uh, post that was on MySpace, I guess, back in the day? Yeah. Or, or the AOL bulletin boards? Adam, yeah. Adam's older than we are. So. <laughs> but it, yeah, so it, it, so it's, it's impossible to imagine like none of this would have happened. 
But right. Not, not not only that, we have a we have a real world experiment in this because in a transatlantic sense, like look what happened to Europe. I mean, America's permissionless innovation model, the secret sauce behind it, was really Section 230 from a policy perspective. Section 230 made it so that it was safe for innovators and entrepreneurs to launch the next great idea without fear of punishing liability. Because we always talk about regulation and all of its dangers, and that's true. But man, we've got a trial lawyer problem in this country in a big way too. And Section 230 insulated our best innovators in this new digital commerce area from that sort of onerous liability. Meanwhile, in Europe, it was like open season for regulators and 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 for trial lawyers. And I I ask people, you know, 25 years later, I'm like, tell me, name me one leading information technology company headquartered in Europe today. Just one. And and they really struggle. Well, every once in a while, I say Spotify, and I'm like, I'll give you Spotify. Now give me a second, you know. But Spotify isn't that big, and it's just an app, right? And it's a recent one. They don't have any players. This hasn't been the same since Neil left. <laughs> it really hasn't. But the reality is, is that this is, you know, from a perspective of economists and political scientists, we care about natural world experiments and what they can teach us. Mm -hmm. And over the last 25 years, America has become the dominant player in the digital technology space and the envy of the world. Even if they want to come out and regulate our companies, it's because they don't have any companies of their own to regulate, right? That was because Section 230 gave us that. And there was one other important thing that happened at the same time. The Clinton administration came out with a vision document called the Framework for Global Electronic Commerce, which in my opinion is the single most libertarian policy document ever published by any government in history. And it was done by the Clinton administration and written by Ira Magazine or no less, the author of Hillary Clare. Hillary, Hillary Care, but he came out with a document that basically said like we should have a market-driven arena for digital commerce, we should have free trade, and when we have problems develop, we should have more decentralized solutions, multi-stakeholder processes, crowdsource solutions. It was a beautiful vision for a new emerging technology that said we're going to firewall off the new digital world from the old analog hell that the FCC and other regulators had put us in. And now today, I'm really sad to see so many people want to just throw all that out. And just basically say, no, like, let's hit the reset button and go back and see if we can try some old ideas. You mean like the fairness doctrine? Yeah. You mean like common carriage? I mean, do you remember using a black rotary dial phone and we thought innovation back then was a longer cord and a different color on the handset? That's not the world we want to go back to, but that's the world we have if we get rid of Section 230. So it's it, it, sticking with the um, Star Wars analogy, they, they unleashed this, this big, beautiful, uncontrollable thing. And that's the one thing that politics doesn't like. That's right. They want to be in charge. Yeah. They want to control. Going, you know, going back to the fairness doctrine, yeah. it was that that was a small version of the same thing where you know conservatives were complaining that they weren't weren't getting their fair time. That's right. Um, but, I would just I, I'd like to deviate slightly from the the Star Wars, but throw our old friend Hayek into the mix here because yes <laughs> by the way we we drink when we quote Hayek right, right. Sure. Okay. cheers <laughs> cheers to Friedrich but he that that document that that uh, Adam is talking about basically said we are too we don't know there's too many unknowns we can't control this we need it to let the market evolve and do its thing very Hayekian in, in, in its approach and if you look at the the path that Europe's taken they've become the world's expert of internet regulations because they think they know how to control the world so we've got the GDPR we've got DSA all of these regulations of companies that are not generally European companies but they're controlling all the the, the tech platforms of the world from from a perch in in uh, Europe or yeah. Brussels that ignores Hayek's warnings about trying to, you know, yeah. 
claim you know too much about how, how markets work. That's right. They just passed some regulation about the type of cord that I can plug into my iPhone. Yeah, right? that's right. And I, I can't keep up with what they're called, but we've frozen technology with this one cord and, you know, God forbid there'd be some, some radically innovative approach because it won't. Well, what do you do about that? So the EU is apparently a big enough market that they're able to bring our companies to heel on a lot of this regulatory stuff. I occasionally get and notice that um, German speech regulations have flagged something that I said <laughs> and that I've been allowed to continue to speak. I'm like, I'm not German. What's going on there? Like, what do you do about that? Because that seems like a, a big problem for us. And similarly to the way that the Chinese government will badger our companies yep. as well. It's a huge problem. So the exporting of regulation, as Wayne suggested, is becoming the only thing that Europe exports when it comes to technology. Um, in fact, there was a recent journal, the International Economy Journal, had a special issue on European technology uh, uh, future, and it was titled The Biggest Loser. So it was like everybody was admitting, all the contributors, that like Europe had no chance of growing a tech market. And so they're exporting regulation and that's it. Now, how do we deal with this? Well, if we had a better, more principled government and set of leaders, they would be standing up for markets and freedom internationally, right? And, you know, there have been times when our leaders have stood up and said, you know, we're not going to take it anymore. We're going to try to have a free trade agreement. We're going to try to, you know, broker some sort of like an opening of markets. Instead, we have a lot of regulators today and a lot of government officials, especially in the Biden administration, who basically just sort of want to make peace with that or even use it as a model for here. Yeah. So uh, let's mm -hmm. go through a couple of, of acronyms from Europe that may, maybe not everybody's heard of on, uh, on your on your show. But GDPR is a big privacy uh, regulatory regime. The new one is the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act. And now there's an AI Act and there's a new Liability for Robotics Act. It's just layer upon layer upon layer that they want to export. What our government should be doing is we should be standing up and saying, hell no, we won't go. We are not going to play ball by those rules. This is a, essentially a violation of global free trade and, and digital commerce and, and speech. And we're not going to allow your, your companies to play these games uh, here if you're not going to allow our companies to engage in commerce there. Instead, I fear the worst is going to come where we're just basically going to cut deals and say, like, well, maybe we can have a lighter version of all these regulations here. Or, like I said, use it as a model for what's to come here, because there's a whole bunch of regulation being proposed for now for artificial intelligence and computational services that looks a lot more like what Europe wants than the old permissionless innovation model that made America's tech sector so great. It's It seems like a, a political dilemma. So to, to quote the, the new National Republicans, um, in America, first policy would protect our tech sector because that's that's basically the core engine of our economy today, whether they like it or not. But that's that's where the growth has been. That's where the innovation has been. Um, conversely, and I'll pick on Josh Hawley, but then we'll get back <laughs> to picking on Democrats. Um, they have this. Uh, he has this very antiquated view that we just need to get control of the levers of power and make these companies do what we want them to do. Yeah. Which is so wildly naive because never in the history of the United States has there been sort of a mono party that, that where you finally control things. And certainly um, after the last election, I would think Republicans might think twice about, let's create this huge infrastructure to regulate um, speech on, on social media. And then, oh, look, Elizabeth Warren is the chairman of the committee. <laughs> oh, look, Kamala Harris is the new president. Oops. Right. What, like, am I some sort of rocket scientist that I can figure this out? Like, what, what the hell is he thinking? Wayne, what is Josh Holly thinking? <laughs> it's, I, I don't know. I, I, it, it, 
mystifies me. And, it, and it's it's not just Joss Holly. It's a lot of allies that we've worked with in the past. And going back to the days that we were at FreedomWorks, some of our, our, our favorite supporters have suddenly found that in, in some cases, maybe markets need a little correcting. Um, yeah. And it, it's it's disturbing. And, and I think that's a bigger question than just the tech space. You could kind um, of blame Trump because, I mean, Trump was sort of uh, saber rattling about this. But in classic Trump fashion, I think he was just negotiating, right? He he may or may not have been serious about the policy, and he may not have even thought about the policy implications. But. I, I think that's exactly right, but it's even worse than that, because I think basically Trump and Hawley and people like them have decided to pull a page out of the far left's playbook and become the equivalent of like communications collectivists or media Marxists. Mm -hmm. It's like the ends justify the means to control mm -hmm. the, the, the means of production of information and power. And so they view information technologies and platforms as a means to an end. This is about getting our views or our ideas or our people out there yeah. and visible. And I think you just said it right, Matt. I mean, they've never won that battle in the past. Why would they think they're going to win it now? And, you know, amazingly, when Ronald Reagan vetoed the Fairness Doctrine in 1987, there was an effort to reinstate the Fairness Doctrine after it was uh, eliminated. Uh, and it passed Congress. And many Republicans supported it. And Ronald Reagan, in an amazing statement in his veto document, basically says, that has never worked for us. Why would we do it now? Instead, we should favor more competition and more innovation. That's the solution. It's not making peace with government and saying, oh, now our guys are going to be in control. Yeah. And maybe that'll be the truth for like a minute. And, and they might not even do the right thing, right? I mean, Trump's people had control for the last four years. Really, what good did it do them? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then he had a remember he had a White House social media summit and he got a bunch of people together in the room to go grumble, grumble, grumble. We hate media and we got to do something. And then they hit the tables and then nothing happened. Right. Uh, in fact, Trump got deplatformed. <laughs> the worst things happened for Trump. Yeah. So it's like, I'm not, what, what's the point, man? You know, that ain't going to work. If you made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Kibbe on Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty Curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things Liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. Yeah. You know? This gets to like when I say we're in the middle of things and I uh, on any given day, you take a snapshot of what's happening in the United States and perhaps the world and, and be sort of depressed about the, the cause of, of human liberty. But I think there is there is some sort of political realignment happening where it's the authoritarians right and left. Mm -hmm. People who want to control the levers of power. They want to they want they what was the. Marxism phrase you used. I'm going to write that down. Communications collectivism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Um, versus, like, I'm seeing um, people that that used to kick the crap out of me when when I did more political stuff. Uh, Glenn Glenn Greenwald, um, Lee Fang. Do you remember oh, Lee, yeah, Fang? Yeah, Lee Fang? Yeah. He was with Mother Jones at <laughs> yeah, one point, yeah. just just dogging us every day. And he's <laughs> the one that wrote this tremendous Intercept article outing the Department of Homeland Security. Um, is is it? I always mispronounce his name. Matt Tiabi or yeah. Tabai? Tiabi. I'm not exactly sure. Not but sure I say Tiabi. Logan. Yeah. Taibi. 
Taibbi. Taibbi. All right. Anyway, he like uh, you could go Google the old Rolling Stones articles where he's calling me a dirtbag. Yeah. And I'm like, I love this dude. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think I think there's there's this this beautiful thing happening where we're true civil libertarians and, and people that believe in free speech and and just democratized power. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, it's that's, political realignment, That's right? the future, yeah. I mean, we're seeing a realignment, and a lot of it's technological-driven, and a lot of it's other social forces. But, I mean, the, the, the people that we used to disagree with so often are now, like, people yeah. we ally ourselves with. And there's old institutions, by contrast, including think tanks we used to work for that, like, you know, we probably couldn't even walk in the door anymore. I, I spent 10 years at the Heritage Foundation. If I went in there now, they'd be throwing, you know, bottles at my head. Yeah. So uh, it's a very strange world we live in. Or at least MAGA hats, I guess. <laughs> Uh, and so I, I don't know where that leads, though. I don't know that there's a turbulent period in between that alignment, and I don't know where we come out on the other end and where people stand exactly. But I'm I'm happy in some ways that it is happening and that people are reconsidering their other frameworks. And we can work with people who used to be on the hard left and say, like, look, there were always good reasons to question authority and authoritarianism in particular, whether it's left or right vestiges of it, right? And, and here's my theory of change and how I think this comes out, though. I've always been a believer in my 30 years of doing technology policy that it's all about buying time. It's all about making a, a wide berth for technology to work its magic, right? And we just have to hold off the worst things from happening. It means we play a lot of defense in our movement, right? But by holding off the worst vestiges of like the empire striking back, we buy time for technology to get in there and work its magic and do new and exciting things, right? And so if we can make new selective alliances with people who are now skeptical of the state and we can also help buy some more time for technology to work its magic, I'm still excited about the future. It's why, despite all of our pessimism here tonight at this table, I still am optimistic yeah. about what might tomorrow, yeah. tomorrow might look like. Yeah, I don't know. Like, um, yeah, we're, we're constantly yelling at the, at the dumb and, and sometimes purposefully evil things that government does, but um, you, you can make the case... Um, always that um, people figure stuff out. People work, find a workaround. People hack the system. And, you know, it's, it's not just entrepreneurs. It's, it's just people doing what they naturally do. Um, you know, other than the huge step back we took in the last three years, um, global poverty has been disappearing before our eyes. And in lockdowns, we've, we've taken a, a huge downturn. But that, that wasn't by permission That's that right. wasn't from the top down that was just people figuring well, stuff out i always use this phrase in all my work about technologies and sectors that are born free versus born into regulatory captivity and there's always going to be some technologies like aviation and certain transportation sectors and fintech where we have a really really hard time because there's all these technologies that come online but they're immediately trying to be pigeonholed into an old regulatory regime those are born into captivity if you will but the good news is there's a whole bunch of other technologies and services like the internet computing and these things the smartphones that were born free and once they get out there and get some traction and people start utilizing them, there's no going back. There's no putting that genie back in the bottle. The very fact that we're sitting here having this conversation that we would never have been able to have 30 years ago is progress, right? right? right. And I don't know what 30 years from now my kids are going to be doing when they have conversations like this. Hopefully they're as good libertarians as I want them to be. But, <laughs> you, know, the, you know, whatever podcasts are doing, 
power to them or whatever other type of thing they're doing, but it will be technologically enabled, right? Our job is to find a way to make that world safe and open up the born free camp wider and wider. Allow evasive entrepreneurs to get in, not just Elon Musk, but everybody else like him. Yeah. You know, I think we first met when you were at the Chamber of Commerce and I was at Heritage and it was like 93. Oh, we're going to air all our dirty laundry. We're going to air all the dirty laundry, yeah. And and basically we were at a meeting about regulatory reform was when yeah. we first encountered each other. And I remember that distinctly because I think our old friend Jerry Ellig, the late Jerry Ellig, was mm -hmm. there and some other friends who worked on regulatory policy. And a lot of people in the Reagan administration and other uh, administrations worked hard on things like uh, like telecommunications and transportation deregulation and reform and got nowhere, nowhere, because these were born in captivity technologies. And we argued forever about things like taxi cab reform and things like that. Yeah. And we had all the economic evidence on our side. It was a slam dunk case. We even had people at the Federal Trade Commission and DOJ agreeing with us on this. We got nowhere. All the best evidence in the world. And then in 2010, Uber and Lyft came along and Airbnb a year after that and changed everything. Like this, right? 70, 80 years of all the best economic reasoning and political work and, and, and we didn't get anywhere. And then technology changed the world overnight. We're never going back. We're never going to put those genies back in the bottle. Right. Right? So hopefully that's the pattern we see for the next technology and the next one. It's about making the world safe for them. I think I have old public choice books that basically use uh, taxicab medallions as an example of how um, democracy eats itself and there's absolutely nothing <laughs> you can do about that. That's right. And I got to throw those books away now. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, they're, they're, they're going after the new man and it's just this endless cycle of that stuff. Yeah. Um, thanks, thanks for outing me for working for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Wayne, Wayne, what no. is what is the dirtiest part of your past? I, <laughs> I, I know you worked uh, you worked at OIRA. Yeah, a, a funny story about that. And, and along these lines, it was I was in a part of the Office of Management Budget where agencies sent their regulations to to get our blessing before they could be published. And there was somebody deep in the bowels of the Department of Transportation obsessed about Saber, the airline ticket reservation system, <laughs> yeah. the CRS system. And it was uh, every couple of months I'd get this little call, hey, where's my regulation? And, it's just, and then it was the same kind of story. Along came Orbitz, along came all these other yeah. travel travel sites, and the whole debate just sort of yeah, dissipated. It was, it was all done. Yeah. yeah. By the way, it, it would be fair to point out that um, under, you were there under uh, 41, Bush 41? Correct. So even that George Bush had an effort to protect against overregulation, in large part spearheaded by Dan Quayle mm -hmm. and OIRA, part of OMB, just one of these dusty bureaucratic um, agencies was in charge of, of putting the brakes on the natural tendency of bureaucrats to regulate. And, and I, think, I think we've probably lost some of that tradition as well within the Republican yeah. Party, just being- Really have. Not, not, not all Republicans, obviously. Um, some, the few Republicans that are allowed on this show would, would very much embrace uh, permissionless innovation and, and letting markets flourish. But, but there is, there is a tradition that's that's struggled. To I, I think a lot of it is, you know, going back to our, our, our study of public choice is that sort of been pushed aside, and the whole notion of pub public choice is applying the the rationale for studying economics to the political sector you know people in the political sector pay mortgages they're just like you and me they you know they have self-interests um 
And that's going to affect the outcome because they, instead of working for a bottom line, they're working for an agency of the government where maybe a bigger, better budget is better than profit maximizing. So, so all, all of that study, I think, has been sort of pushed aside by this, this new generation of, of Republicans who think that they can design the perfect program, ignoring the, 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 the policies and, and, and things that are driven by lobbyists or rent seekers coming in, in, into contact with the government and crafting things to keep competition away rather than promote competition. I, I think we've fundamentally forgot a lot of those stories. And, yeah. and we're back in the place where we have to sort of revigor reinvigorate that, that debate and, and let people know that just because a government program is planned by the government doesn't mean it's going to work. Okay, you almost quoted James Buchanan, so we have, <laughs> there we, go, yeah. we have to toast to that as well. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, my mantra, you know, I'm, I'm a generalist. I'm, I'm what Hayek somewhat derisively would call a public intellectual because, <laughs> because I, you know, I understand, like tech policy, I understand just a little bit. You guys dig much deeper. Um, but if I don't understand something, I have several basic filters that I will apply to anything. One is the Hayek filter, um, the knowledge problem. Um, do we actually know enough to reorganize exactly. insanely, almost infinitely complex systems? And the other is sort of the public choice, um, Lord Acton, power corrupts, the incentives don't align with what we might aspire people to do. And if you just sort of humbly apply those two things, you might realize, well, maybe we shouldn't try that because we don't know, we don't know what we're doing and we don't know what's going to happen when we do it. Yeah, that's right. You know, um, the the old libertarian uh, presidential candidate, Harry Brown, had a book once called Finding Freedom in an Unfree World, I believe it was called. Mm -hmm. And I've always taken that phrase to heart and thought about how my role in the world of technology and innovation policy is to use technology to find a little more freedom in an unfree world. Yeah. And, you know, I've worked at the policy game for a long time, 30 years. We, we've all been involved in it for a long, long time. And we got to keep up that fight. But, I mean, it's a demoralizing thing because we don't make a lot of progress, right? I mean, you go back to the early, the, those early Bush days and you go uh, on through the years. We've had so many regulatory reform commissions and efforts to cut back the red tape and reinvent government. Where have these gotten us? Bigger government. <laughs> I mean, every agency that I've ever worked on to downside is now probably two to three times the size it was when I started working on it. I wrote two different books on abolishing the FCC, and that, that agency is bigger than ever. You know, we haven't made any progress in the policy world. Uh, the, cap the venture capitalist Mark Andreessen says that he doesn't believe in institutional reform objectives anymore. He doesn't believe they can happen in our system because it's so dysfunctional. And so you then have to think about how technology and innovation is our play. It is our freedom, you know, uh, working objective in it. And we have to figure out how to make the world safe for acts of entrepreneurialism, right? And so that's really, really hard. And I, I don't know the best way to do that always, but continue to preach the gospel of permissionless innovation and then continuing to push back against the government, litigate against them. My wife works at the Institute for Justice, which is probably the most important institution in our movement, just suing the government every chance we can get to gum up the works. You know, that's where we got to go. We got to go. And then my advice to all young people is, hey, come work in policy if you want to. I'll try to find you a job. But really, go out and invent something. Go yeah. out and just change the world through your own mind and your own hands. You know, act. Do something to really take control utilizing these new technologies of freedom. That's that's where I find optimism. And it's, I mean, it's, it's related to having a platform like this and a million platforms like this where people can explore for themselves what's going on in yeah. the world. And I, um, you know, I, I think there's an upside to the downside in the sense that um, 
young people are quite cynical about politics and political leaders. Um, they know it's all bullshit. Um, and they, whenever they hear the talking points, regardless who they're coming from, they just shut it down. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't buy that it's stuff. BS, yeah. That's that to me, like, and you can see these trends, um, you know, going back to, uh, section 230 in 1996. And you would, you would see these trends start to emerge. Um, I would, I might start with Howard Dean. I'd, I'll just do this through a political lens. Howard Dean almost broke the, the Democratic establishment and, until he got too excited and, and <laughs> the Dean scream yeah. was was the end of, of that trial balloon. But right afterwards comes the Ron Paul movement and the Tea Party movement and Bernie Sanders and and Donald Trump in a different way, but but still different in the sense that um, he wasn't sanctious, sanctioned by the machine. And, and to me, that process of, of people finding their, their sort of niche or their, you know, their, their micro market where, where they feel like they have family, there's an upside to that. There's also a downside when, when uh, governments sort of weaponizes all of these, all of these teams against each other. But, right. but again, we're in the middle of a paradigm right. shift. Yeah. Um, and I, I, think, I think it is all about permissionless innovation one thing I want to go back to, Wayne, just to just to make make it clear to people who still think that repealing Section 230 is a good idea. What happens the day after we repeal Section 230? Uh, I guess we may find out in Texas because they've sort of done that, right? Mm. <laughs> um, and it's is it going to be just a flood of obnoxious, polluting emails that you get, or, or you know, spam on steroids? I mean, there's. It, it's hard to say. I mean, it, or do you come down, you know, people just get out of the content moder moderation game altogether and then you don't have as many choices for platforms. I, th I think it's, I don't know, you, if you have any yeah, I think lawsuits are Yeah, I think lawsuits are going to fly. I mean, I, the reality is, is that um, I, I mentioned at the outset, you know, we live in an overly litigious society. I'm a big believer in the common law and the sort of decentralized law. And, you know, usually I would favor torts in most cases, but... The reality is, is that we have a problem in the United States because we make it way too easy to sue using a sort of junk science-based approach right. um, to all sorts of things. But if you do this for speech, I'm not really sure where that leads us because it makes it very difficult for all but the very largest platforms to absorb the legal litigation costs associated with that lack of protection. Uh, I would prefer to live in a world where we didn't have to have something like Section 230, that our legal system was very simple and efficient and all that jazz. But that's just not the world we live in. And luckily, because we addressed this early on, because it was a sort of basically a circuit split where like we weren't sure where the law was coming out, and the Cox-Wyden approach basically says, we're going to favor freedom. We're going to favor more commerce, more speech. Let's give it a chance. That was the right approach, and it basically was a corrective to our overly litigious society. So I'm really, really concerned, and I think I, I want to speak to conservatives on this um, because a, a lot of my conservative friends really do believe that like they're going to be better off in that world, and I don't think that's right. I don't think that's right. I don't think the, how they, I don't think they get a fair shake or they like get a be better treatment from large tech companies. I think there's always been a little bit of an uphill battle with conservatives and even a lot of libertarians with large companies 
I don't care if we're talking about shopping malls or tech companies. Right. I mean, the reality is, is a lot of the elites in a lot of those institutions are just very liberal, very mm -hmm. left of center. And so, you know, I'm not sure if repealing 230 is going to get them where they want to go. At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today. Just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love Liberty and look cool. Or to, to use the word in a more traditional sense, they're, they're more conservative in that they're corporate and they're risk averse. And that, they're, yeah, that's they're not wanting to tolerate anything. So my, my sense is that repealing 230 actually amplifies everything that's pissing us off about content moderation right yeah, now. I think that's um, right. Yeah. You, can't, you can't talk about anything that, that corporate advertisers don't like and they're going to err on the side of just taking it down yeah. because that's what they will have to do that's right. to avoid litigation problems. And, and it, 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 to me, it probably kills social media, which is all, already, I think, struggling under this, this lack of, of freedom yeah. that's come from extreme content moderation. So I think it, I think it kills the golden goose. Uh, but... but to make sure we have an optimistic note on this. <laughs> the good news is, is that we don't know what happens tomorrow, right? I mean, there, there are going to be technologies and platforms and services that are going to come about that we probably can't envision right now. Right. I mean, a lot of people right now are leaving Twitter for Mastodon. And Mastodon's kind of a clunky mess of a, of a social networking site. I'm not even sure you call it a social networking site, but you know, it's very decentralized. And I'm a still a big believer that like open source technologies and decentralized tools and technologies they, they essentially change the balance and the status quo a little bit and require a rethink. And so I think hopefully that gets us to a new and better plateau. It won't be a perfect one. We're going to have another struggle if we all go to Mastodon. We're going to be talking about a different thing, right? But it's an interesting world that we'll live in if, if we move to that. Yeah. And I, I'm, that, that's why I'm going to be hopeful because I think that that's ultimately our best solution is more innovation, more competition, just like when Reagan said it when he rejected the Fairness Doctrine. Don't go down the path of thinking we can make our peace with regulators and get the world we want. Yeah, we've got to instead invent the future that we want. Yeah, I'm, I'm putting all my eggs in some sort of blockchain solution that that sort of recaptures the energy of the late 1990s when technology was truly free. Um, let's talk about R Street for a second here, since um, I've never had an R Street guy in the show. Um, Wayne, you've been with R Street now for a year or two? Uh, two years now, yeah. Right. And, and basically, we are a, a free market think tank that looks for ways to solve pragmatic problems in, in, in government policy. So um, we engage with, with the Hill, we engage with regulators, and we just brought Adam on to help us do that. Um, but our, our, our goal is to, to persuade uh, the power of markets and, and, and sort of inject that into the debates that are going on around policy. Um, I and Adam are in the, the tech and innovation space for, for our street, but we do everything from, you know, harm reduction, criminal justice reform. There, there's a, a number of issues that you've probably weighed in on as well. Um, but we're there to, to voice the, the support for free markets as an alternative to uh, additional regulatory solutions. 
And my former colleague, Josh Withrow, is over there as well. What's, what's his portfolio? He does a lot of the competition questions, antitrust, and as well as internet governance. So okay. he's, he's part of our team and, and works alongside us uh, on the same set of issues. Any, any shameless self-promotion that you would like to do about books or are you are you on, even on Twitter? Do you do that kind of stuff? <laughs> do you know Do you know what Twitter is? I, I, I I've heard about it. <laughs> you still read You still read books. That's in, right. On I, paper, I, I, right. I send it to print before I read them. <laughs> Wayne's going to get on Twitter next week, and then Twitter will implode, and it will never yeah. be there. But there, for one yeah, day, Wayne will, Wayne will be there. Blame one me day. for for the death of Twitter. You'll blow your <laughs> Blow your minds with your first tweet. No, but, but we 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 have a lot of events. In the other area that I do, I don't know if you've gotten into it much is the intellectual property i've got a couple of papers coming out on that oh yeah and how rent seeking can, can potentially damage the patent patent system as well so i am um, i am a skeptic as well, you know of intellectual property and we've gotten drunk talking about this stuff <laughs> over the i'd love years. to be back on your show talking about that sometime <laughs> yeah I, I definitely want um you guys are going to be my tech panel and every time i'm trying to figure out what yeah, the hell's going on absolutely. i'd love for you guys to come back but but you have a recent book. Do you have a new book out? Or Hell, I've got I've got a book every other year coming out. So I've got ten books now. Nobody reads them, but hey, you got to publish them. Yeah. Um, so you got to prove to people you've done your homework, right? My next book's going to be on artificial intelligence and the computational revolution. We've lived through the digital revolution, and the next big technological revolution of our lifetimes is going to be artificial intelligence and, and computational sciences, machine learning, uh, big data, quantum computing. And this promises to revolutionize every facet of our lives for the better, in my opinion. But there's all sorts of naysayers and people who have a techno panicky attitude towards any types of new innovation, but especially automation technologies and algorithmic technologies. So this is going to become the biggest technology policy fight of the next quarter century, in my opinion, just as the Internet has been the biggest fight of the last quarter century. So stay tuned. I'm happy to come back on the show, Matt, and you're going to feed me more good beer, and I'll talk about this and, and until you won't talk have me anymore. Skynet and how, how <laughs> well, the robots are taking over. Well, this is the, the, new, the latest fear campaign from sort of the national conservatism is that robots are going to take all of our jobs. Yeah, and you know, how long have we heard that, right? right. <laughs> I mean, the, the the whole fear that the Luddites had about automation is incredible to me. And I've, this is going to be one of my first papers. Are you, are you talking about J.D. Vance? <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's remarkable to me because we have history on this, right? right? This is where, again, ideas should have consequences but somehow don't. I mean, our ideas here are sound. They're based on science. They're based on economics. Automation has expanded jobs. We have more jobs than we ever had before. And all the companies that are investing most heavily in robotics today, Amazon and all the others, they're hiring like gangbusters, right? I mean, the, the thing that all the techno-pessimists always forget and the Luddites always forget is that human needs and wants are infinite. And so long as they are, technology and entrepreneurs will find a way to satisfy them. And if we free up our best and brightest minds, they will go out and find a way to satisfy those needs and wants. You know, there was a whole profession of people back in the 50s and 60s who were for, for big government and for large corporations called calculators. These were the dudes that did the hard math, and they were sadly mostly dudes, although there were the women that were depicted in the movie uh, Hidden Figures yeah. that did it for NASA, that basically did the hard math on their trusty slide rules and basically stood on a chalkboard in their side rules and figured out, like, the numbers. And then computers came along, and that's what we call calculators today. Oh, my God, all those calculators, those human calculators, were out of business and they never, you know, out of work were never heard from again. No! They went behind the calculator. They knew computing machines called, you know, personal computers, and they built the future! The Internet that we know and love today was built by the people who were displaced 
by the machines because they had the freed they freed up their time to think bigger and better as opposed to sitting there doing math on a slide on a, on a slide rule and on a chalkboard right you could tell this story time and time again and yet people never ever buy it they never believe it instead they would just say oh the robots going to take all of our jobs i will take any bet on this the robots won't take all of our jobs because it's never happened before and it, it won't happen again okay we're going to end on that beautifully all right, all optimistic right. note yeah very optimistic cheers cheers, cheers guys freedom thanks for watching if you liked the conversation make sure to like the video subscribe and also ring the bell for notifications and if you want to know more about free the people go to freethepeople.org